Okay, we'll be in Proverbs 6 this afternoon. Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll do verses 1 to 19 today. It's a longer chapter, so we'll divide it in half. Well, not perfectly in half, but uh, as close as we can get. So Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 to 19. There it says, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. There are six things which the Lord hates, Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and Lord for the wisdom that it Lord grants to us. Lord, may we see that these are not mere suggestions, Lord, that you are giving to men to take or to leave, but rather, Lord, these are your commandments. Lord, this is what you call us to do, and that those who reject this wisdom, Lord, that they will be destroyed by you. So, Lord, may we see that this is a matter of salvation. Lord, this is an issue of life and death, that we must Lord, bear the fruit in keeping with repentance, and that that fruit is manifested through a life of wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would give to us these convictions, Lord, that we might conform our life, Lord, in all of its aspects to the will of God. Lord, in the things that we do each and every day, Lord, that we would not walk in the path of the wicked, but rather we would do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, help us today and teach us, guide us by your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Here in this chapter, the prophet is giving to us various issues, right, circumstances, uh, on how it is that we should live in relationship to various things that we will encounter in life. These are common to men, right? Common issues, common things that spring up among men, and we need to be aware of these things, right? And here he's talking about sin, He's talking about sin all throughout this passage and how it is that we will avoid sin. So we have to talk about sin, right? Our Christian life is about overcoming sin. 
in doing what is righteous. We need to know what it is that God wants us to do and what it is that we need to avoid, right? What are the excesses? What are the abuses that are out there that we must avoid with our life? And again, these are very practical helps, right? It's dealing with the Christian life, the practical aspect of sanctification, right? Of sanctification. We remember in Romans, when we were in Romans, way back in the day, in Romans chapter 6 to 8, the apostle there teaches sanctification from a theological perspective. Then in chapter 12, from 12 to 16, he teaches sanctification from a very practical perspective. What did it looks like day in and day out? Well, this is what the book of Proverbs is doing. It's showing us how we should live in all the various situations that we're going to face in life. And I had said earlier in our study that some of these things, even an unbeliever, can do outwardly, right? Especially like in terms of being a hard worker. There are many unbelievers who are hard workers who say, I'm not going to sleep all the time. Instead, I want to be diligent. I'm going to work hard. And they are able to amass great fortunes and be very successful in this life because they're diligent and they're hard workers. But here, what he's expecting of us is not merely the conformity of our outward man, but that it proceeds from faith, from faith and a desire to please God. That's the difference between a wicked man who's a hard worker and a righteous man who is a hard worker. The one does it in order to get ahead in this life. That's why he's doing it. He's doing it because he wants money. He wants to be successful. He wants those types of things. Whereas the righteous man is doing it because he wants to please God, right? And then if he is successful, if God honors his work, then that's good and fine. But primarily what's motivating him is his desire to please God. And that's the way that we should take this. These aren't merely tips uh, helps, habits of highly successful people. This is the life of faith pra- manifested in very practical ways in daily life. And this is the way that we need to be. So let's look in these, here it breaks up into these four different sections that are dealing with various issues. Verses one to five. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. Here, the issue at hand is debt, surety, right? You have put yourself up as a pledge for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of a stranger. This neighbor of yours is indebted to another man and you co-signed with him, right? You put your own name up as a pledge so that if this man does not fulfill his obligation and pay his debt, then it's your responsibility. Then you are the one who has to pick up the tab. You are now indebted in this way to your neighbor, right? You have become surety for him. You have given a pledge for a stranger, which is a very foolish thing to do. Why would we give a pledge for a strange man when we don't know him? We don't know his character. We don't know what kind of a person he is. We don't know if he's diligent and he's going to pay back his debt. Maybe he's a swindler and a cheat. And then he skips town And then who's left paying for it? You are, because you put yourself up as a pledge for him. He describes it here in verse 2, you've been snared by your words. You've been caught with the words of your mouth. You have entrapped yourself into a snare of debt, and you are caught within it. And now you are stuck, and you have to deal with this issue to get out of the trap, right? To get out of the snare that you are in. So you've done something foolish that you should not have done. But now you've done it, and you've got to deal with it. That's what he's teaching here first, in order that we might avoid it in the first place. Don't do these types of things, but then if you do them foolishly, sinfully, 
then this is what you need to do. Right? Don't we believe and understand that sin has consequences? That we can't just say, oh, God, forgive me, and then I don't have to deal with it. No, we should ask God to forgive us, but then we have to deal with the ramifications and uh, absolve it in whatever way that we can. Okay? Verse 3, he says, Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. You have been caught. Now it is your responsibility to deliver yourself. You're in the trap by your own foolishness, your own stupidity. Now you need to deliver yourself. You need to do what is necessary to get yourself out of the trap. You're in your neighbor's hand. You need to get yourself released from your neighbor's hand. And how do you do that? Well, the first step is you humble yourself and you plead with your neighbor. Whoever it is that you're indebted to, you go to them with humility. You don't go in a haughty way. You don't go in a a, a way of entitlement. You go with humility and you plead with them to relieve the debt, to give you some help, to, to let's come to some understanding, some agreement by which we can take care of this because I want to be rid of it. I don't want to be in this situation. So I'm pleading with you, whoever is the one holding the debt, and let's work out some arrangement so that we can get all this taken care of. Right? That's what he's saying there. You need to act upon it in humility, not with a haughty, entitled spirit. He says in verse 4, Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. You need to do it quickly. Don't give yourself sleep. Don't say, well, I'll deal with that next week or the week after. I'll deal with that later in life. No, he says you need to deal with it now. Go now and deal with it and start the process of whatever is necessary to relieve yourself from this debt. And don't give yourself any sleep, no slumber, until it is taken care of. If you have to get another job and work harder in order to pay off this debt, then do whatever you have to do to get out from under this debt. Even if it means depriving yourself of sleep, do what is necessary because this is how precarious of a situation you have put yourself in by going into this trap, by being there. You are like a gazelle in the hunter's hand. And what's the hunter going to do to the gazelle? He's going to kill it. He's going to slaughter it. You're like the bird in the hand of the fowler, and he's going to kill you and eat you. So you better get yourself out as quickly as possible. A couple of passages. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 Verse 15, Proverbs eleven fifteen. 15. He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. Right here, a pledge, a guarantor, right? A surety. If you are a surety for someone else, you're going to suffer for it. That's what he's saying. You're, you, that's a very foolish thing to do. And the person who hates doing this then he's very secure. But we would say, well, shouldn't we love our neighbor? Well, no, not like this. Not like this. Not if it means having foolish debt. No way. We shouldn't do those kinds of things. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 18. 
1718, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. A man who lacks sense does these things. He co-signs. He is a guarantor. He becomes a pledge in the presence of his neighbor because now he is indebted to two people, right? There is the one that holds the debt to the neighbor and you are enslaved to him and you're also enslaved to the neighbor who took the debt because if he washes up and doesn't pay, you're on the hook for it. So your livelihood, your possessions, your estate is bound up with two different individuals instead of yourself. And this is a very foolish situation to be in. Chapter 22. Chapter 22, 26. Chapter, two, or chapter 22, 26. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debt. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Here, don't be among those who give pledges. Don't be a guarantor for those who get debt. Because if the debt comes due and the one that you have been a pledge for doesn't pay, then they're going to come get your stuff. And if you don't have the money to pay, he's going to take your bed from under you. And you'll be sleeping on the floor. Your back's going to be hurting every morning because it's such a miserable night's sleep. Your very bed's going to be taken away. He's not going to spare you. He's not going to have pity and compassion on you. He's going to take what it is necessary in order to get back what is owed to him. And even your valuable possessions, even your necessary possessions like your bed, these things are going to be taken away from you. So we should not do this. We should not be a pledge or a surety for other people in this way. And if we have, then whatever is necessary to get out from under it, we should get out from under it. If we take foolish debt, we should do this as well. We should do whatever we can to alleviate ourselves and be delivered from it and work hard to have a plan and do what is necessary to get out. Proverbs 10, 19. Here, this relates to being ensnared with the words of your mouth. Chapter 10, verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Right? A person who is pledging himself for another, being a guarantor for another, he's not restraining his lips. He's using many words. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll come along and help you. I know that you're good for it. You're, you're a good man. Well, you never know. You never know. And if your words are many, you're going to be caught in transgression. But if you restrain yourself and are cautious and don't say anything, then you're not going to put yourself up as a pledge for another. Chapter 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. He's restraining himself. He's cautious. He's not acting in this hasty, erratic manner, on the cuff, on the fly, doing this, doing that in this way. He, he is a cautious man. He restrains himself. He has a cool and calm spirit so that he's not putting himself in these types of precarious situations. But someone who is erratic, who just does stuff impulsively, well, then they're going to catch themselves in a trap. They're going to foolishly, impulsively put themselves up as a pledge for another, 
And then later they're going to regret it because they did not have self-restraint. They did not control their tongue and their actions. Then lastly, Proverbs 22, verse 7. Chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. The borrower is the lender's slave because the lender has a right over your property, over your property. Well, we don't want to be slaves in this way. We want to be slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness, but not slave to a lender. And we don't have control over our own property whenever we are borrowing money in this way because now the lender has control over our property. So we should not take this type of foolish debt Foolish pledges, foolish surety for others. Because if we do, it's going to come due, and then we're going to be on the hook for it. So he warns us about that, and we should not uh, do it in this way. And, and that's a good warning for us today in America, because we live in a debtor society, a debtor society where many people are living on the basis of foolish, foolish debt. We should not be like them in that way. We should save our money and then buy things when we save our money instead of just going and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing for whatever trinkets, whatever things that we want in this life. Verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. Here, the issue is work. Work, and the way that we should work. Does the Bible tell us how we should work? And the answer is yes. Yes, and is this optional? No, right? This is an issue of salvation, right? If we don't do this, then we're being disobedient to God, and we need to obey God. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. Well, how does Jesus expect us to work? Not as a sluggard. And actually here, the Bible is saying, look to the ant, you sluggard. Now first, this is intended to be an insult. An insult. That you people, you human beings, created in the image of God, with a rational mind, you're so foolish that you have to look to an ant to teach you how to work. This shouldn't be the case. And who's he talking to? The sluggards. The sluggards. That's not a very flattering term. This is a term that we need to use in our own society. We need to call people sluggards who refuse to work or who do not work hard. We shouldn't say, well, they're unemployed. Now, again, someone may be unemployed, and their unemployment may be because of things that are outside of their control. That certainly is the case. But when someone is unemployed for five years, that's laziness. That is being a sluggard and not working hard, not being diligent, right, in doing the things that they need to do. And if someone is lazy and will not work, refuses to work, or does not work hard, who is always uh, sloughing off at his job, then we should call him a sluggard, a worthless sluggard, right? Isn't that a very degrading term, right, to call someone? Because they're like a slug. And what does a slug do? It slugs around all over the place. It's a big, grody slug. Well, this is what they are in relationship to the way that they work. So we need to use these kinds of biblical terms to describe people in this way, right? Which we talk about. We need to call them adulterers, 
fornicators, sodomites, right? Drunkards, sluggards. A sluggard is someone who does not work. Well, he says here, go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. How can it be that an ant, which is an irrational creature, it does not have a rational mind. It's not thinking in terms of the ways that we think whenever we're making decisions in life. An ant is not created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. Men are created in the image of God. And then even in relationship to other creatures, is an ant a majestic creature? It's just a little bitty bug, right, that no one pays attention to. It's not like an elephant or a lion or some majestic creature. It's just a simple little ant. Yet, these ants work very diligently. They work very hard. They are extremely hardworking in what they do. How can the ant work hard, but the people be lazy and not work hard, right? When God expects us to work, and we are expected to work in a hard way. Verse 7, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The ant does not need the boss breathing down its neck. The ant does not need a ruler, a chief, an officer, standing over it with a whip to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do. The ant does it instinctively without anyone telling it what to do. It goes and it works very hard and is very diligent in the things that it does. It prepares her food in the summer. The ant knows that in the summertime, when there's a more abundance of food, the days are longer, that's when we need to gather our food. We need to store it up so that when the winter comes and there's less food and the days are shorter, we have provisions stored up for us and we're not caught in this way. So it's preparing, it's storing, it's making these provisions. She gathers her provision in the harvest. So she knows when she needs to work hard and how to work hard to store up and to prepare for those times when it's going to be more difficult to gather food. And she does this without a ruler, a chief, an officer telling her what to do. She works very hard and very diligently. But what does the slugger do in comparison to the ant? Verse 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The sluggard, in contrast to the ant, likes to lie down. He likes to sleep. Now, of course, we need sleep. We have to have sleep. But this is excessive. This is abuse. Abuse of sleep. The sluggard wants to sleep all the time, late into the day. He doesn't want to work. Typically, the sluggers, they like to stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning, and then they want to sleep till noon. Also, the uh, criminals like to do this as well. This is what criminals do. They stay up all night committing crimes, and then they sleep all day when they should be working. They don't work. Instead, they want to go commit their crimes. Well, this is what the sluggard does. He sleeps all day, and then he's carousing and having a good time all night long. Well, when are you going to get up, you lazy bum, you sluggard, when are you going to get up and go to work and do something, right? Where are you when the workday begins? Oh, you're asleep still. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. If you give yourself to sleep in this way, in this excessive, abusive way, then what's going to happen to you? You're going to become poor. 
You'll be a poor man. Poverty is going to come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Then when the winter comes and there is no food to be gathered, you're not going to have anything and your family's going to be starving. Then you're going to go around begging from other people to come and help you. But what are they going to do? They're going to say, no way. No, I'm not going to help you. I know what kind of a person you are. You're lazy. Why is it that I should go out and work all summer long, work hard to provide for my family while you were sleeping and sloughing off and doing nothing, and now you expect me to come and help you out in your time of need when your need is a result of your own sluggardness, your own laziness, your own sin? No, your poverty is going to come upon you, and when it does, you're going to get what you deserve. You deserve to be poor. You deserve to be destitute. You deserve to be in need and for no one to help you because your need and your poverty is a result of your own sin. And if you let a lazy person be hungry enough, guess what they'll do? Eventually, they'll go get a job. Eventually, they'll get up and they'll go work. Now, people will say, well, that sounds very cruel. It's not very loving. Tough love, man. These people need tough love. This is the kind of love that they need. They need to be told these things, and we should not be like this, right? We should be diligent to work, whether that be uh, the man who's getting up and going to work, doing whatever it is that needs to be done, or if it's the wife who's working in the home or doing whatever it is that she's doing, we need to be diligent. We need to be hardworking. We should not be lazy and giving our time to idleness, to sleep, to these things in an abusive and in an excessive way. Proverbs chapter 19, chapter 19, verse 15. 1915 says, Laziness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Also, 2013, Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Again, here it's the love of sleep, the excessive, abusive love of sleep. I love to sleep. And this is a problem for many people. They like to sleep uh, and they sleep their whole life awake. But he's saying you shouldn't be like this. If you wake up and go to work, then you're going to be satisfied with food. You're going to have food because you're working hard and you're providing food for yourself and food for your family. So we should not excessively sleep and be lazy in this way, or idle, right? Or give ourselves to idleness, which would be someone who's awake, but they're not doing anything productive at all, right? So a little sleep, a little slumber, but we might as well also say today, a little YouTube, a little Facebook, a little Instagram, right? A little Twitter, right? These types of things consume time. Idle time, worthless time, right? People give themselves to these types of things and it can take your whole day up. And then you look around and what have you done all day long? Nothing but snoop and be nosy in other people's lives, right? And so it's not accomplishing anything productive at all. It would be better to put that down and go work and do something that is productive for the house, right? Out in society, for your family, do those kinds of things. Now here as well, we ought to say, In verse 11, he says, poverty will come upon you like a vagabond. The person who is like this, the sluggard, is going to be a poor man. How's he going to be rich if he's not working? He's not going to be rich. He's going to be a poor man. 
a destitute man, a man who has needs. But should we help him? Should we assist him and provide for the needs of someone who refuses to work? Right? Because here his need is not, we're not talking about a cripple. We're not talking about a blind man who is unable to work, who doesn't have the ability because of his affliction. In this case, his affliction is his own sin. That's why he is unable to work. Is because he's unwilling to work because he loves sleep more than work. So should this person be helped? And the answer is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. It says there, For even when we were with you, we used to give this order, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. If someone won't work, then they shouldn't eat. Here, this man can't eat because he's, he has need, he's poor. But the reason he has these needs is because he won't work. So should I give him food out of my pantry so that he can eat? According to 2 Thessalonians 3.10. No, you should not help this person. If they would let... Actually, they let me run the welfare department. We could clean a lot of this up really, 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 really quick because 99.99% of what is going on in our society today is supporting these kinds of people, people who are poor because of their own laziness, because they are refusing to work. So the point being here, the presence of poverty is not an automatic guarantee that we should help that person, that we should assist that person we have to ask the question, why is he poor? Why do you have this need? How did this come upon you? We have to use discernment whenever we're evaluating these situations. Because if the poverty is a result of him being a sluggard, then he is a wicked poor man. A wicked poor man, and we should not help him. Because if we do, we're aiding and abetting him in his sin. We're supporting and promoting his sin. And we shouldn't do that. Now, if the poverty is a result of not being a sluggard, but the result of, say, persecution, he's a Christian, and now no one will hire him because he's a Christian. No one will do business with him because he's a Christian. Well, then that's a different situation. And in that case, we should assist them and help them and do whatever we can to help them find a job, but also to assist them in their time of need. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. Here, he describes a worthless person, a wicked man, the Bible does describe people in these terms as a worthless person. Worthless. They are utterly worthless in the sight of God. They are a wicked man. These are the characteristics of a worthless, wicked man. And a worthless man is a son of the devil, right? A son of the devil or a son of Belial. Often you might see that in your translations. A son of Belial is a son of the devil which is many times translated as a worthless person or a worthless fellow. Well, this is what he is describing. The characteristics of a worthless, wicked man. 
Now, why is it doing this for us? So that we're not like this. That, that's the point of this being written down. It's written down for us for our benefit so that we can say, okay, these are their characteristics. Then I don't want to be like that. I don't want God to think I'm worthless. I don't want God to consider me a wicked man. So I'm not going to behave the way this man behaves. Well, what does he do? He walks with a perverse mouth. His mouth. The first thing it goes to is his mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth, the tongue, right, is the member of our body which most clearly manifests our sinfulness. What kind of a person we are comes out of the mouth. Isn't this true? Don't people reveal their character? They reveal who they are by what comes out of their mouth. Well, here he has a perverse, a perverted mouth. This is what is true of a worthless, wicked person. He speaks perverse things, profane things, but also those things that are lies. Those things that are lies. For example, most people wouldn't consider, you know, if I said uh, a psychologist, oh, they're professionals, right? They're very sophisticated. But what they're saying is contrary to the Bible. What a psychologist is saying about human nature, about mankind, about behavior is contrary to the Bible. So what he's saying are lies and his mouth is perverse because what comes out of it is a lie. So according to this passage, what is he? He's a worthless, wicked fellow. Even though he's very sophisticated, he talks in a soft tone, you know, he dresses nice, whatever. Uh, so it's not only profane people, but also those who are spewing out lies. Any lies, contrary to the word of God, is a perverse mouth. 13, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. Here, they use these subtle, crafty ways to communicate evil to other people. Winking with the eyes, uh, they wink with the eye, they signal with the feet, they point with the finger. They have these subtle, crafty, hidden ways to disguise themselves from some, but to signal and to communicate with their partners in crime, with other evildoers of their evil tensions and the perversity that they want to do to other people. This is the way that they behave, right? And you've seen this type of behavior before. Verse 14, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Ultimately, the source of his perversity is his heart. He has a wicked heart, and because of his wicked heart, he's continually devising evil schemes, always thinking about sin, devising it, thinking about it while he's on his bed, getting up, acting upon it. This is what he does. He has a perverse, perverted heart, and as a result, he behaves in perverse and perverted ways. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 15 to 20. Matthew 15, 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Say, it's out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. They originate in the heart, and then they manifest themselves in the words, in the deeds, in the body, in what the person does. Well, this is the same that's being described here. He has a perverse heart, and as a result of his perverse heart, he has a perverse mouth. He has perverse hands. He has perverse eyes. Everything about him is corrupted and polluted because it's flowing from his heart, which utters the issues of life. He spreads strife. Strife, constant friction, fighting, carping, contention. This is what the wicked do. Wherever they go, they leave a wrath of misery. They're constantly causing fights and causing strife and conflict between other people. Verse 15, Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. As a result of him, the way he lives... Because he refuses to repent, then his calamity is going to come upon him suddenly. God is going to destroy him. And then oftentimes as well, when a person lives like this, don't they, many of these kinds of people, even in this life, they come to a sudden abrupt end? Because if they're living like this and they're causing trouble all the time, well, maybe they cause trouble with the wrong person and he gives them a good pounding or he shoots them or kills them or does something like that. Then they come to an abrupt end in this life, and they come to an abrupt end in the life to come, on the day of judgment. But whether it be in this life, for certain it will happen on the day of judgment. His calamity is going to come upon him suddenly. Because those who live like this, they have no fear of God. They don't fear God. They don't fear the day of judgment. They're not thinking about the life to come. They're not thinking about standing before God. They're just living according to their own evil desires. And then one day they die. And every person, no matter how old they are, they all die unexpectedly. No one thinks the day that they wake up that this is the day of my death. Now everyone thinks that they're going to have another day or two, another year or two, many, many more years. It happens to them suddenly. And now he has to stand before God and receive what he's done according to his deeds. And what's God going to do to him? He's going to throw him into hell. He will be broken and there will be no healing. God's going to break him, and God's not going to heal him, meaning he will have eternal, unending judgment in the lake of fire. Suddenly, it comes upon him. 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Now, as to the times and epochs, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. There, he says that the day of the Lord will come upon them in this sudden, destructive way. They're saying peace and safety. They're living this sinful life. Everything's going to continue on just like it always has. And then destruction comes on them suddenly, quickly, like labor pains come on a woman. One minute she's fine, and the next minute she has her labor pains, and then all of this has begun, and the child is going to be born. That's how it's going to be on the day of judgment when Christ returns for the ungodly. But what about for the godly? It will not catch them unaware. Because we know that Christ is coming back. So we're prepared for that day. We're living a godly life. We're not living the way that they are because we know that Christ is going to come. And whether it's today or tomorrow or in a hundred years from now, we're going to be ready for the return of Christ by living a godly life. And then it does not catch us unaware. Yes, we don't know the exact day, but we know he's coming. And that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. The wicked... They don't believe in the second coming of Christ. Or even if they do, they have filled it with perverted meanings. Meaning it's just going to be a day of grace and love and everyone's going to go to heaven. But they deny the judgment part of the return of Christ. But we should not be like that. Okay, then verse 16 to 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Here, he gives six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, again, this is a figure of speech, a way of speaking, God hates all seven of these. All seven of these are an abomination to him. He's saying it in this way to catch our attention. Six things. No, there's seven things that the Lord finds as an abomination. These are things that God hates. Now, when we read this and we see, okay, God hates these things. So should we go and do this knowing that God hates it? He can't be any more clear. This is sufficiently clear for us to say, okay, if God hates this, If these things are an abomination to God, then I need to stay as far away from this as possible. I don't want anything to do with these kinds of sins. Now, here, this is not an exhaustive list, right? Not an exhaustive list. There are other things that God hates, but these are common sins. That's why they're listed here. These are things that you find commonly in man. And again, Seeing what God says about them, it should lead us to fear God and then to avoid sin and say, I don't want anything to do with these things. Notice as well, it has to do both with the heart and with the members. The heart and the members, because there's a one-to-one correlation between the two. Right? Whenever we have a heart that devises wicked plans, then that wicked heart will manifest itself in the eyes in the tongue, in the hands, in the feet, in our members, right? Whatever is controlling us is going to control our members. If sin is controlling us in the heart, then it's going to control our eyes, our tongue, our hands, our feet. If the Spirit is controlling us, He's going to control our eyes, our tongue, our hands, and our feet. 
So there is this correlation between the inner man and the outer man. And again, God hates these things. So what does God hate? First, it says, haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. God hates haughty eyes. Now here, again, it's not merely the eyes that God hates. It's not merely the sin that God hates. It is also the person who does this, right? It is the person who does it because of what he says uh, in verse 19. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. He's not merely talking about sin and he's not merely talking about the member of the body used to commit the sin. It's the person, the person that uses the member to commit the sin. This is who God hates. A false witness is a person. One who spreads strife among brothers is a person. Well, this is true of all these. One who has haughty eyes. One who has a lying tongue. One who has hands that shed innocent blood. So he's talking about the person who does these things. And the Bible does teach that God hates people. God hates people who commit these kinds of sins. So if we don't want God to hate us, then we shouldn't commit these sins, okay? These sins. The first sin is the haughty eyes. This is a proud, arrogant person. A proud person has haughty eyes. His haughty eyes, he uses to look down on everyone else. He thinks everyone is inferior to him and that he is superior to all men. We read this yesterday in James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God hates Pride And pride is a primary sin. Right? It is a root sin, a foundational sin in the heart of men. Filled with pride. This is what sinful men are. How can we have haughty eyes toward another person? Seeing that they are our fellow man. Right? Seeing that we all came from the same lot of humanity. Right? Adam is our father and Eve is our mother. All of us. So what makes us better than them since we all come from the same lot of man? And doesn't the Bible also teach us that whatever gifts we have, whatever uh, abilities that we have, whatever station we have in life that may give us some advantage over our fellow man, did that come from us? Did that originate in us? So if you have a higher IQ than other people, and there are some people that are smarter than others, is that because of something you've done? Or is that given to you by God? If you're a better athlete than another person, well, did you make yourself that way? Or is that given to you by God? If you have more wealth than another man, well, yes, certainly you should work hard. But there are many people who work hard and who do not become wealthy. So how did you do that when others have not? Right? If you have some position, whether it be a king or a ruler, a president, a senator, well, isn't God the one that gives that to men? He gives it to whomever he pleases, according to Daniel chapter 4. So what do you have that you've not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've received it as a gift, why are you boasting over and above your fellow man when God gave that to you? It didn't originate in you. So why do you have your haughty eyes in the way that you look upon other people? We shouldn't do this at all. It is arrogance. It is pride. We should have a humble disposition. 
Instead of focusing on how we're superior to others, why don't we think about our own sin, our own sinfulness before God, and see ourselves in the right way? Why don't we think of ourselves as creatures before our Creator? Don't compare ourselves to other men, but compare ourselves to God. Now, of course, in terms of contrasting between the righteous and the wicked, we need to do that for our own sanctification and for our own benefit, but not in a prideful way, not in a haughty way, not in a way where we say that we're superior to them because of our own works. We're only different from other men because of the grace of God, and we should give God the glory for those things and not be haughty against our fellow man. Next, a lying tongue. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Using the tongue to lie, to deceive. We should not do this. God is a God of truth. When God speaks, he only speaks the truth. Who is the father of all lies but the devil? Satan is the father of lies. So when we use our tongue to lie, we are behaving like the devil. We are acting like a child of the devil, and God hates all lies. He loves the truth, and he hates lies. So we should hate lies as well. They should be detestable to us, and we should never want to use our tongue to deceive other people or to lie in this way. Next, hands that shed innocent blood. The hand, the hands that we have, that God has given to us to work, to carry things here and there. Well, when someone kills another man, which member do they use? It's the hands. You have to have the weapon in the hand. You have the gun in the hand to pull the trigger, the knife in the hand to stab the person, the club in the hand to whack them over the head and kill them, right? Whatever a person kills another man, sheds innocent blood, the hand is the instrument of the body, the member that is used in order to do this. He's using the member that God has given to him in order to provide for his family, in order to do those things that are needful for his own body, for the good of his family, for the good of other men, and yet he's using them for these violent means in order to take the life of another person created in the image of God. Here, it's shedding innocent blood. Now, of course, the Bible does not condemn the shedding of guilty blood. If someone commits a sin, a crime worthy of death, then we should use our hands to shed their blood. But that's not a sin, and God doesn't hate that. Actually, God loves that because it is justice and it is righteousness. But whenever someone has not committed a crime worthy of death, that's what it means by innocent blood. Then their blood should not be shed by the hands of another man, and we should not partake in that. Genesis chapter 4, this is what Cain did to Abel. Abel was an innocent man, both in terms of the law of society, he had not committed a crime worthy of death, but especially in terms of his righteousness. He was a godly man, a righteous man who was a worshiper of God, and this is why his brother hated him. And he used his hands to shed the innocent blood of his brother. And God despises this. God hates it, and we should not use our hands in this way. Verse 18, a heart that devises Wicked plans. Here again, this is the core, the center. This is where it all comes from. An evil heart that devises wicked plans. Evil plans, sinful plans. Plans contrary to the word of God, to the law of God. Using our heart to devise these types of things. And why would a person do that other than their heart is filled with sin? Other than that they love sin and their 
the thoughts of their heart is only always towards sin continually. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thought of his heart, only evil continually. Well, if God hates a heart that devises wicked plans, and the testimony of Genesis 6-5 concerning mankind at this time is that they use the heart to devise evil, then what does God think about these people? He hates them. And then what did he do to them because of that? He destroyed them in the flood, killed every single one of them except for Noah, who was a righteous man. Only Noah was preserved, and then the seven others with him. This is what it means here. The heart that devises wicked plans. We should not use our heart in that way. Next, feet that run rapidly to evil. Here, the feet which are used to carry us here and there, we should not use them to carry us to sin, to carry us to do mischief, to do evil deeds. And here, they run rapidly to evil. These are the same people who drag their feet to go to church. You can't get them to go into the door. They're always late. They're very slow walking when it comes to doing their duty, when it comes to going to work, when it comes to going to church, doing all the things that are good and right. But when it comes to doing evil, what can they all of a sudden do? They're able to run all of a sudden, very swiftly and very fast, to go commit their evil deeds. And isn't this the way people often are when they're committing evils? They run to do it. They run to do it, and then they run away so that they can get away, so that they don't get caught and captured. They use their feet in these evil ways. Well, we shouldn't use our feet in that way. But the Bible does say how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Whenever we use our feet to carry us here and there to proclaim the gospel of peace, then that makes our feet beautiful. But whenever we use our feet to run to evil, then it makes them detestable in the sight of God. 19, a false witness who utters lies. A false witness. God detests a false witness. Already, he hates a lying tongue, but here, it's a false witness who utters lies, who uses his testimony to degrade another, to convict another, right? To make another person look evil and sinful and like a criminal. This is what the false witness does. He stands up and he testifies falsely against another person so that either in the public opinion or in the court of law, whatever it is, this person will be of low esteem in the eyes of other men. But it's not based upon truth. He's not giving a fair, honest testimony concerning this person, but rather he's uttering lies, he's slandering, he's gossiping about this person, he's giving a false testimony so that the result is... The opinion of the people concerning this man is not consistent with the truth, but rather it is based upon a lie. How can we judge a person? How can we determine what kind of a person they are, what kind of character they are, what kind of a man he is, if people aren't telling us the truth about him? If they're lying to us about them, then we're going to think, oh man, this guy, he's really worthless. He's a, a horrible person. He's a wicked man. 
Well, this guy's lying to me, though. He's telling me things that are not true. So then it causes him to have the bad opinion of them. And in the most aggravated case is in the court of law, where the judge sentences the man to death or sentences him to prison based upon false testimony. Because he assumes, the jury assumes, that the witness who takes the stand and puts his hand on the Bible and raises his right hand and confesses that he will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help him God, that he's going to speak the truth. But then if he doesn't speak the truth, then the innocent man might be condemned. And that's an abomination in the sight of God. So we shouldn't do this. False witnesses who utter lies. There's a lot of these in our, actually in the government, right? They, they love to lie up there in uh, the congressmen, the senators, the judges, the lawyers. It's like a profession of liars is what they are. Well, we shouldn't be like that at all. Even though our leaders are setting a bad example for us. We shouldn't follow their bad example, but the good example of the Bible. 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, 8 to 14. Here's an example of false witness. False witness uttering lies. 1 Kings 21, verse 8. So she, being Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter, saying, Proclaim a fast, and send seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him. That's like the ones we read about earlier, sons of the devil. Worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of his city, the elders, the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death, with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Now, is it just and right for someone who curses God and the king to be stoned to death? Absolutely it is, if he did it, but he didn't do it. So all the people who took part in that and didn't know what was going on, they think that he's done this, though they should know by his own character and testimony that this isn't the case. They should have inquired more carefully but you have two witnesses. You have the elders there. You have all those who are in this position. They're all saying it. So he must have done it. But he didn't do it. These were false witnesses spewing out lies against him. And then it led to the death of an innocent man. Or the shedding of innocent blood, which we read about earlier. God hates that as well. And this is often the case too, isn't it? That these are not isolated sins. But when one sin is committed, it leads to many other sins. In the case of the false witness of Naboth, well, it also led to the shedding of innocent blood and a heart that was devising wicked schemes. So all of these sins are present whenever people commit sins. They're always there in one way, shape, or another. Okay, next. One who spreads strife among brothers. A spreader of strife. This is the pet church, uh, or the pet sin of the church, of the church. 
churches are filled with these kinds of people, people who spread strife. In my years, and probably your own testimony as well, if you grew up in church, there are people who do this. They love to spread strife. They love to cause controversy, conflict, contention, divisions among people all the time. Where there should be harmony, they want there to be division, and they want there to be, to be conflict on the basis of sin, right? That's the problem. Yes, there are times when we should have division on the basis of righteousness, such as when Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to set a son against his father, right? But that's on the basis of righteousness. These people spread strife among brothers on the basis of sin. They're troublemakers, malcontents, fault finders who go around and back talk and backbite and do these kinds of things and where there should be harmony and peace, they cause there to be strife, chaos, misery, war, all these things are taking place. They make husbands and wives at war with one another, children against their parents, a brother against his brother, the church against the elders, the elders against the church. These things happen all the time because of these kinds of people who love to cause strife and contention where there should be harmony, right? There should be Harmony and unity, but they like to cause problems. 1 Samuel 22. Here's an example of this. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. It says there, Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting at Gibeah, under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all of his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now, right there, talk about false witness. He's falsely testifying concerning David and Jonathan. None of these things are true. These are all in his own mind, in his own sin. Then verse 9. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent and summoned, uh, sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him? so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, 
Turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also ox, donkeys, and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. So there, Ahimelech, when he assisted David, he didn't know that there was any conflict between David and Saul. He, didn't, he had done this a hundred times that he had inquired of him, that he had helped him. He wasn't conspiring against Saul in one way, shape, or another. He was just assisting David as he had always done and wasn't trying to cause any problems or strife. He was completely innocent in the matter. And then who is the one that brought this contention between Saul and Ahimelech? It was this Doeg, this worthless fellow Doeg, who caused this strife to exist and put this in Saul's mind that Ahimelech in his household was against him. And then it led to the shedding of innocent blood. Ahimelech, his house, the women and children, what did they have to do with it? The oxen, the donkey, what did they have to do with any of this? And yet they all die because of this one worthless fellow, Doeg the Edomite, who spread strife among brothers. And it led to all of this chaos and misery. And David said, I knew that worthless person. I knew what kind of a man he was. And when he, when he was there, I knew what he was going to do. Because this is what his character is like. Well, we should not be like that. We should not stir up strife among brothers, but rather seek to bring reconciliation. We should be peacemakers, not strife makers, and especially in the church. In the church. Now, there's one last point on this. Typically in the church, the way it works is the naysayers, the malcontents, the grumblers and fault finders, Typically, their beef is going to be with the leadership. It's usually going to be with me because they don't like the word of God. And I'm the one up here teaching most of the time. So their beef is going to be with the teacher of the Bible because they hate God. They hate God's word. They hate God's authority. And then they're going to get upset. And then who are they going to go to? Well, they don't ever come to the pastor, but they will go to the members and they'll try to gain your ear. They'll try to come and stir up strife and turn you against the leadership. This is the way it commonly works in the church. Well, when they're doing that, we shouldn't listen to them, right? We shouldn't listen to them because they're spreading strife among brothers. If there's an issue or something that you're unsure of, then just come and ask about it, right? Come ask openly, honestly, and get the information that you need. But these kinds of people, this is what they like to do. And I've seen it over the years many, many times. No one ever leaves quietly. They throw a hand grenade into the building and they want to blow it up, and then they leave, and they say all these things about how much they love us when they don't, and then they get on the phone and they start calling people, meeting with people secretly, 
privately to try to turn them away as well. And it's very, very dangerous when they do that. So we shouldn't let them do that. We have to have uh, discernment. We have to be objective. We have to look at what's going on and ask, why are they doing this? What, what is happening here? What kind of a person are they? And then deal with it in the proper way. So because we don't want to be led astray by those that God hates, right? If we join in with a multitude in doing wicked, then we're going to get what they get as well. God will hate us too, and we don't want God to hate us or to be an abomination in his sight. Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it so clearly teaches us. Lord, without any ambiguity, Lord, very clearly and straightforwardly, Lord, it shows us those things that are sinful and evil and displeasing to you. Lord, things that you hate, things that are an abomination to you. Lord, we pray that you would guard us from living this type of foolish life. Lord, from putting ourselves up as a surety for another. Lord, from being a sluggard who is lazy and does not work hard. Lord, from being a worthless and a wicked person. Lord, Lord, giving ourselves to these sins, Lord, that you hate. Lord, that are an abomination in your sight. Lord, we pray that the opposite would be true of us. Lord, that we would use our members not to commit sin against you, but rather that we would use them for righteousness, whether that be our eyes, our, our tongue, our hands, our feet, Lord, our mind, our ears. Lord, whatever member we have, Lord, may we use it for righteousness' sake. And Lord, we pray that our heart, Lord, would not, Lord, be perverse, and that it would not devise evil schemes, but that our heart would be filled with your spirit, that our heart would have your law written upon it. And Lord, we would be using our heart, Lord, to pursue you and your word, Lord, to be obedient to you. So Father, we pray that you would help us in these things, Lord, help us to live a godly life, to reject sin and to reject those who do these things. Lord, as well, we pray that you would protect our congregation, Lord, from those that like to cause strife and sow discord among brothers. Lord, we want there to be unity and peace here within the body of Christ. Lord, not based in a superficial way, but Lord, based upon truth and righteousness. And whenever there is no reason for there to be enmity or for people to be at odds, Lord, whenever there is no sin, that's the cause of that, then we pray that there would be peace and harmony. We would not let Wicked men stir us up one against another. So, Lord, protect us from those kinds of people. And, Lord, help us to live at peace with one another. Lord, be with us this Lord's Day as we go from here. We pray that we continue to worship you, Lord, to set our hearts and minds upon you today. And, Lord, that you bring us back together again. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.